Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Following the latest school shooting in Florida, there has been a spotlight on who owns the shares of the world's biggest gun makers. And it turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, it is the largest asset managers that have a lot of passive funds or funds that seek only to track indexes uh, that have gained a ton of assets in the past few years. Here to talk about the implications of this, Eric Belchunas, who is an expert in everything and anything related to funds, uh, but who specializes in each. ETF, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, and he happens to be here in New York today in our 1130 studios. Uh, Eric, let's start with uh, how significant is passive ownership of gun-related shares? Okay, so I crunched the numbers before uh, coming on air today, and I will have a note coming out. Thank you for the inspiration. Um, yeah, we're looking at passive ownership let's say of the S&P in general, is about 16%, right? That's the average passive ownership. It's about double for some gun stocks. So RGR, right, that's 30% owned by passive funds. Uh, AOBC, which is the one everybody's really honing in on, is 21% owned by passive funds. Uh, Vista, VSTO is the ticker. That one is 27% owned by passive. And then half of that is ETFs. Remember, passive is index funds, and ETFs combined. So that's where you get. So we're looking at a quarter to a third of these big gun stocks are owned by passive funds. Why why do they own why do passive funds own so much more of these gun stocks than they do other stocks? Here's why. These gun stocks aren't that big, right? When you're a mid-cap, small-cap size stock, you end up getting into a lot of ETFs. Those are the ones that usually have bigger passive ownership than say like Apple. Here's why. So like BlackRock, for example, you look at um, uh, American outdoor brands, that's the one everybody seems to be focusing on. BlackRock owns 11% of that company. It's by far the biggest owner. Why? Half of that ownership comes from one ticker, ITA, which is the Aerospace and Defense ETF, which is now a $6 billion ETF. Why? Well, because it's crushing the S&P. It's up like 35% in the past year. It's doubled in size. In terms, it's gotten flows and the asset prices have gone up, which begs a really a question for BlackRock. You have an aerospace and defense ETF. People would buy that, I'm assuming, hoping you include those companies. Are you going to kick out or try to get the index to kick out a gunmaker from an aerospace and defense ETF? Uh, this is a conundrum that Larry Fink will have to figure out. I think that you uh, connected that just perfectly to where I'm going next. I mean, because BlackRock is saying they're going to engage with gun makers. What can BlackRock and other passive managers like Vanguard or, you know, Fidelity, what can they do if they really aren't going to kick a name out of an ETF? They can't. What can they do? Yeah, they are married. They cannot get divorced. It's like the old days. We, we're not getting divorced. We're going to stay oh, married. Um, so look, you're going to have a BlackRock. I'm a big fan of setting the tone. Larry Fink's got a big megaphone, right? So just saying things out loud, getting people like us to talk about it, this helps move the needle in a public relations aspect. Does it do anything to the ownership of the stocks and the ETFs? No. Will it maybe, will these companies maybe look to impl implement some programs? Maybe. The bigger thing they can do, and what they have done in the past, you, there was a big issue with dual class shares. That's where a company basically wants your money but not your vote, where they, you know, the tech companies do it. 
Uh, BlackRock and Vanguard got the S&P, S&P people to basically ban dual share classes going forward. So Snap will never be in the S&P 500 because of that. That was a big win, and that directly affects a company like Snap and uh, other companies moving forward. If they were to want to exclude gun makers from the big indexes, they that would be the way to really do it. However, then you've got Larry Fink making political decisions right. for you, well, and that then is that right? Then then you're going to have that's you know people worry about passive so ma- making uh, the capital markets turn into like socialism. This seems to be a slippery slope going that direction. Right. Well, that's that's what I was going to ask. Uh, you know, how political can they go? And and you know, do we have any inclination of what investors really want? I mean, uh, do most investors care? Right. So I think they care. There are options for them. Like there's a host of ESG ETFs that purposely have come along and say, we can either give stocks that are good for ESG or we'll eliminate ESG, bad ones. environmentally and social, social governance. And governance. I know. They need a new acronym. That, yeah. I, that's part of the problem. They haven't been a hit. I think the acronym is needs work. Yeah. Um, what but, do you recommend? Well, impact investing is a big one. I just think they should call it liberal values because that, that's who they're appealing to anyway. <laughs> Um, you know, there's an ETF that's um, the GOP stock tracker ETF that will that will hold a bunch of gun stocks. You also have other um, types of ETFs that purposely hold those like industrials ETFs. That's fine. You go there for those. You can go to ESG if you don't want them. The question is this middle ground of like the S&P 500. And that's where do you want Vanguard and, and BlackRock to basically take up their issues? My view on this personally is that when you hire a passive manager, I think what you really want them to do is just make sure that the uh, sort of the uh, boundaries and the rules are really set. You have an independent board. You're pushing for good ESG policies, but do you do you take up an issue that's important just to that person and force a company out of an index? I probably I don't know if that will happen, but. Having his voice in there definitely affects the public relation aspect of this entire issue. Yeah, although he has to be careful because, as you said, a lot of people are worried that ETFs are sort of a slippery slope to uh, socialism. So if he starts uh, weighing in on big political and politically polarizing issues, uh, then uh, he risks some political interference. Uh, Thank you so much. Eric Balchunas, always enlightening. Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and BlackRock, is saying that they will engage with gun makers that they uh, own the shares for after the Florida shooting. So it is that time we take a look at the municipal bond market. It's a particularly interesting time to do so. Borrowing costs are going up. What does this mean for states and uh, local governments that are looking to borrow money? And Eric Kazatsky is joining us right now. He's a municipal bond strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Eric, can you just give us the big picture so far this year? What have we seen in municipal bond markets and what does it mean uh, for states and local governments? Sure. Good morning. Um, thanks for having me. So we put out a note a couple of weeks ago, and we equated the muni market this year to the upside down from Stranger Things. You know, it's it's almost been a confluence of events where nothing is behaving as it really should from an intuitive standpoint. Um, we've had consistent flows into the sector this year. We're almost up uh, nine nine and a half billion dollars, um, and yet we're looking at losses um, across the board in the indices. And that's more a function of uh, us just following where Treasuries have been on a rate basis. But, you know, your original question was, what does it mean for state and local governments? It means their cost of borrowing is going up as, as rates are ticking higher. So uh, it's, I think that in your note, you said about uh, half a percent higher 
the yields yep. are on uh, municipal bonds right now. And this is interesting because there has been such a flood of cash into municipal bond funds. Um, is this enough to derail any financing plans by uh, any local governments? Not that we're hearing. I mean, pipelines, uh, as far as public finance, are, are still pretty thin right now. Um, but I think that borrowers that need to borrow, I mean, on an on a net basis, the borrowing costs are still low when you look across historical rates over the last 20, 30 years. Um, they just look uh, higher compared to the last, let's say, 24 months. Um, but, you know, that goes both ways. You know, for people who have cash on the sidelines or are looking to enter the market, um, you know, there are some decent entry points right now because they can take advantage of higher rates. All right. So what are you focusing on as a possible good entry point? I mean, we're looking right now at ratios in double-A and single-A rating classes uh, compared to like-graded corporates. And as you get further out the yield curve in like 10, 20, 30 years, um, you can actually pick up um, some decent spread over those. Um, and we're seeing that in both revenue and GO bonds. Um, you know, and what we do is we compare the ratios of the tax-exempt rates to the actual corporate rate, just like a buyer would do if they're evaluating a tax-exempt municipal to a treasury, um, you know, just to sort of use it as a litmus test of, you know, are they cheap, are they rich? And most of the ratios that we're looking at are above their 52-week averages. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I'm struck by as you talk is that you're saying there is a flood of money coming in from investors. There isn't that much issuance from local governments, and yet still yields are rising. That seems odd. And it seems like a red flag. Can you speak mm -hmm. to that? Yeah. I mean, yields are rising to a much lesser degree than where Treasury rates are going. Um, and we've seen this particularly in the short end of the curve. And, you know, in my opinion, that's where the investors are sort of either rotating out of long duration bonds or they're sort of hiding out in that, that short area of the curve, you know, just with all this interest rate uncertainty. So you've seen um, rates you know, really sort of take off in the two year Treasury. And demand has been so high in the muni sector that if you sort of look at where rates have been in the two year space, they, they've been fairly flat over the last, let's say, two, three weeks. So um, the ratios have ticked down. Um, and so you've seen uh, that reflective in fund flows as well as some of the money market funds have, have seen a nice uptick in uh, cash coming in. You know, I'm I'm struck by the end of uh, last year when people were talking about how, uh, or actually the year before, the end of the year before, and people are saying, well, you know, tax reform is going to come and it's going to cut taxes on people and then they're not going to want to buy municipal bonds uh, because that a lot of people go into this debt for the tax benefit. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering what happened to that narrative because we did get a ta we did get a tax overhaul. Yep. I mean, I think on the margin, it, it, for individual investors, the tick down in top tax rate from 39.6 to 37 percent, um, I don't want to say it was a nothing burger, but, you know, based on the cash that's coming in, it didn't really seem to deter the investor appetite. Um, and, and there's still a benefit there when you look across um, other asset classes in that, you know, coming in and buying munis um, on a comparative basis. So I, I think that the biggest change we've seen from a tax reform basis is just the, the dearth of supply that we have right now. We pulled so much supply into 2017 um, based on this fear factor that we didn't know what was going to happen with the final version of tax reform. And now the market, which is a supply-driven market, is sitting around looking for where that supply is going to come from now. So uh, just uh, real quick, anyone care anymore about the pension deficits? I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I just want to, I mean, honestly, there was a tweet by a former CalPERS board member uh, basically saying that CalPERS is heading toward insolvency, CalPERS, the biggest public pension yeah. plan. You care about this? 
I, of course we do. Um, and then one of the things we look at, um, obviously, when we looked at um, the individual credit ratios of a borrower is one of the things we look at is obviously their, their leverage ratios and pensions are one of the yeah. things that factors into that. Yeah. Um, I think California has some issues coming up as far as some, some court cases, which um, depending on the outcome, and I'm certainly not a legal expert, um, you know, might have ramifications across uh, pension plans you know, across the U.S. We are listening to President Trump. He is speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Maryland. Uh, his speech uh, sounds uh, like it is sounding a lot of the notes that he sounded during his campaign, talked about uh, coming through with a lot of his campaign promises. Uh, one of his comments that drew the most applause was when he asked the crowd, which would you rather, tax cuts or the Second Amendment? Uh, and uh, they seemed to uh, cheer for the Second Amendment and say, they'll take away the Second Amendment, which we will not allow to happen. Uh, again, uh, a standing uh, ovation. Right now, I want to bring in Tulu Olarunipa, our White House correspondent for Bloomberg. Tulu, uh, what stood out to you the most so far with the speech? Uh, well, it's how much the president is comfortable and willing to go off script when he's in a friendly environment. This is a president that has very low poll numbers, but when he gets in front of his uh, most ardent supporters in the conservative movement, he really lets loose. And he talked about a number of things that were red meat for the base, talked about the national anthem, talked about uh, the Second Amendment and how, you know, beating Hillary Clinton helped to save the Second Amendment from being eliminated. Uh, the president is really reverting to a lot of his old ways. You're hearing a lot of the stories that he told on the campaign trail and shortly after winning the presidency, even talking about uh, the electoral college versus the popular vote. So we're not really seeing a president that has changed very much and really grown into the presidency. We're seeing uh, the vintage Donald Trump that we've long uh, talked about and, and, and seen on the on the on the you know, on the world stage, he hasn't really changed very much. It seems like he's very much doubling down on a lot of the policies and strategies that he's used in the past. Uh, and this gun debate, he's, he's recently talking about, uh, you know, wanting to arm more teachers and get rid of gun-free zones. He's really talking about it in a way that it's more palatable to his base. He's not talking about the gun control measures that he wants to implement, including, you know, raising the age first you know, the purchase of some firearms from 18 to 21, expanding background checks and even taking on mental illnesses and maybe making it harder for some people uh, yeah. to get to get guns. So, Luke, can you give us a sense of who is at CPAC? I mean, who is the audience there? These are very uh, conservative activists, uh, members, uh, a lot of young people, uh, people who are from the right wing of the party. So members of the House Freedom Caucus would be very at home among this crowd. These are people who uh, like the red meat that the president throws out. They're very uh, active on social media, and, and they want to you know, sort of the, the Donald Trump from the campaign trail who talked about building the wall and you heard yeah. chance of lock her up during the speech. So these are the president's, uh, this is really the president's base, the people that he's really been catering to for the majority of his presidency. And uh, you said that it is interesting that he feels really comfortable, able to go off script, even made a note that his uh, scripted speech was too boring. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective, did he say anything uh, that you think will be uh, controversial among congressmen who are part of the Republican? party. Yeah, one thing that we, we saw, and this isn't 
uh, too shocking for President Trump, but uh, he took a swipe at Senator John McCain, who is uh, back in Arizona fighting against brain cancer. He's been fighting for his life for the better part of uh, four or five months now, and President Trump attacked him over his vote uh, on Obamacare last year. Uh, this is something that it really has rubbed a lot of senators the wrong way, and we've become a little bit desensitized to it. But the president really went after Senator McCain, who is a trusted and, and very uh, re- revered member of the Republican Party. Uh, he attacked him by not by name, but everyone knew who he was talking about. And I think that's something that Republicans uh, are, are, are going to really not be too happy about, because this is someone who's really struggling and really going through a tough time, and they're thinking about him in positive ways. And here you have the president sort of jitting up the crowd to boo uh, Senator McCain, who has long been known as an American hero for his time in Vietnam and for all of his time serving the public in the Senate. So I think you'll hear more coverage of that in the days to come, uh, maybe even hear some senators uh, talk negatively about the president's decision to go against uh, one of their own. And, and it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is to that. Tulu Olorunipa, I'll let you go uh, and listen to the remainder of the speech. Tulu Olorunipa, White House correspondent for Bloomberg, coming to us from Washington, D.C., uh, speaking about President Trump's comments at the Conservative Political Action Conference. We will bring you headlines uh, if he says anything that uh, you need to be aware of. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.